I started meeting people who had really serious problems with immigration, you know, and needed help. And I, mean, I knew that I was never going to get rich doing it. You know, that was the idea was just I want to be able to have some degree of independence, help these people. I speak their language so I can use that. You know, and there was a certain definitely a leap of faith there. Always interested in languages, Jeff Patello realized that learning them could help open worlds to new cultures, relationships, and his own family's heritage. After college, he wanted to be sure he could keep using his language skills and ultimately found a way to merge them with his desire to do something for the good of others. Find out how listening to the language of the heart and having a little faith can help guide you on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with Jeff Patello, and we are going to talk about having the faith and keeping the faith, I think. And so, Jeff, it's so wonderful to have you here. Great to see you, Leslie, and great to be talking to you. Yeah. So, Jeff, I start this the same way every time, saying, when we were in college, who were you? And when we were ready to leave college, who did you think you were going to become? (laughs) Who was I? Very good question. I guess I can start by answering that by saying what I did in college. I played rugby. I was president of my fraternity, studied history. I studied Spanish and Portuguese. But I would say in general, I mean, I was kind of like a fun guy to hang out with and uh, possibly a little bit uh, misguided or meandering. I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life probably was not so focused when it came to uh, schoolwork. I mean, I did try hard in in the classes that I took, but um, I didn't uh, go on to graduate school right away. So, I mean, you could say uh, fun and um, maybe a little confused. Yeah, that sounds about (laughs) right for a college person. And um, where did I think I was going when I graduated? I mean, I think my main goal uh, when I graduated was to get a job. I did not want to go to graduate school right away and uh, not use it. I was lucky enough that my father paid for college and I didn't want to, you know, even though I probably uh, could have been a little bit more considerate in choosing schools and maybe saved him uh, some money, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want him to try to pay for graduate school or pay myself for graduate school and then not use it. Like go to like try to go to law school at that point or continue studying history. Uh, that was that was another thing was whether was I going to keep studying history and try to get a like a PhD and I was always kind of a people person so I couldn't picture myself researching and writing uh, books or theses like uh, for another three or four years or however long it would have taken to get my doctorate so. I had to get a job, and um, and so I uh, I looked for a job where I could use the the little Spanish that I knew coming out of school, and I ended up getting a job with Gillette and their Latin American group. So I was able to get a few interviews. I had a few interviews, and I entered into this management program where I was going to work with the Latin American group in Boston, with the idea that eventually I would go to uh, someplace in Latin America. Yeah, which you did. For a little bit. I did. I did. I worked for Gillette for about four years. I was a year and a half in the U.S. part of Gillette, learning um, like merchand- sales merchandising, sales planning, you know, and just the, the sales uh, sales operations. 
And then after that, I went to work for the headquarters for the Latin American group in the Prudential Tower. And my boss was from Argentina. And I had contact with all of the, the people uh, in the different markets. So I had to start learning the different accents for the different countries and really had to practice my Spanish and, and figure out what people were saying. Because one thing is what you learn in books and what you learn in the standard Spanish. And another thing is to learn the different accents and, and ways of saying things in, in different countries. So, uh, yeah. And it was, yeah. And you're in, in all, the, the, my, my value there was I was the one who spoke the best English. So I reviewed all the PowerPoint presentations for my boss and they would always compliment him on his English. And he would come back and say, oh, Jeff, thank you so much. You know, thank you so much for, <laughs> for reviewing my PowerPoints. Excellent. <laughs> so that was, that was my value inside uh, the Prudential in, in the Latin American group. And then eventually they sent me to work in Mexico. And I worked in Mexico um, in Monterey in the northern part of Mexico for about six six to eight months where I did sales. I did direct sales to stores in Monterey. And then they sent me to Mexico City where I did like a little bit of everything within the sales group, but that was just a little bit too much for me. Mexico City was a little bit too much for me. I'm yeah. 24 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I learned tons. I mean, and th but that was my idea. My main goal, my personal goal when I went to Mexico was Okay, I learned some Spanish at school. I had very good bases, good training. Uh, I want to become a hundred percent fluent in Spanish, whether it's Mexican Spanish, which which is what I learned, or wherever. I want to become a hundred percent fluent so that it would be confusing for someone from there to figure out where I was from. And by the end, I had met that goal. I mean, it kind of happened because it was painful. I mean, there were three <laughs> or four months when I first was down there. I would come home. From work every day and i would have a headache splitting headache because your your brain changes when you have to learn how people actually speak and all of the different expressions and but by the time i left about a year and a half later i mean i remember one time i got stopped by a cop you know in the school zone or something i didn't realize it was a school zone he pulls me over and he says uh he says you know you're, you're this is a school zone you gotta you gotta slow down what's going on so i explained to him oh i didn't realize so, you know, that we were in a school zone, I'm sorry, you know, and I'm talking in Spanish to him and he says, Tu eres pocho, okay? Like, are you mixed? Are you like, your father's Mexican, your mother's American or what, you know? He's like, where are you from? Because you're, you sound like you're Mexican. I'm like, I don't know, I'm from the United States. He's get out of here. He's like, you know, have a, have a good day. That was it. So that's kind of <laughs> what I knew I had made it, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, So your head's hurting. Mexico City is a little bit too much for you. And then you decide to take a different tack. Yes, I took a couple of different tacks. It's a meandering. My whole life has been a meandering. The first thing I did, I said, okay, well, I was in Mexico City. You're a mile and a half up, a lot of smog, a lot of people, 26 million people. And I'm, I'm from the South Shore, Massachusetts, town of about 30,000. 30, a little bit too much for me. And I came back and... I said, what do I know now? I know how to speak Spanish. Okay, so let me go back and I'll go back to my hometown and I'll teach Spanish. And maybe I'll coach some football and baseball. So that's what I did. I went, I went back to my hometown. I got my certification in Massachusetts for Spanish and to teach. And uh, within like two months of leaving Gillette, I was teaching summer school in Marshfield, Massachusetts. 
I started coaching. I taught Spanish for one year there. And I coached football and baseball, which I loved. I absolutely loved. And then I realized after a while that I was kind of losing my, some of my Spanish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't speaking as much Spanish and I really didn't want to lose that. So I went to a fair, I think I went to a fair for, uh, to teach for private schools where I learned about some different private schools. And then I got a job working at uh, Episcopal High School in Houston, Texas, doing the same thing. I was teaching Spanish at first. Then I taught world cultures, which is history for ninth graders, coaching the football and baseball. And I loved teaching. I loved it. Uh, but there was a, there was a point where I kind of was trying to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to keep teaching? I'm going to try to like get a master's in education or something. And for me, I just kind of felt like I wanted to maybe use my Spanish more in a functional way. And I had an idea that I thought I might want to help immigrants because people in Mexico had been so great with me when I was down there. And I wanted to kind of do a job where I can, you know, make the transition for people easier uh, and so that was an idea that from back in the day, I had no idea what being an immigration lawyer was all about, but I just, that was kind of like this idea, you know? And so I applied to law schools after three years teaching down there, I applied to law schools, got like a 75% scholarship to this small school down here in Miami, uh, St. Thomas. So that was going to make a difference in terms of how much debt I would have to take on. You know, I had to decide between there and a few other schools, including uh, University of Miami, which was offering a lot less. And so it would have been a lot more, I would have had a lot more debt coming out. So I came to St. Thomas, you know, I went to St. Thomas and studied there uh, the, the three years of law school. I did pretty well. I mean, you would hope that I would do well, but I worked hard and I did well. And then I worked for a couple of firms when I first got out. And then after about two years, I was working at a firm and I left after about three months and I said, uh, I'm going to try to do this on my own. In the immigration practice? In immigration. Yeah, I had done civil, some, some civil litigation from the plaintiff side for employment stuff. I worked for them, for that firm, uh, for, they were in Fort Lauderdale. I worked with them during law school and then for one year after um, and then decided that I wasn't the suing kind. I wasn't, I wasn't great at suing people. It wasn't really like my, it wasn't really in, in my DNA to be, you know, filing lawsuits. And so I decided to take a, a job um, at a, in an immigration firm, learn more about it. Even though I had had some experience during law school, I had interned with a, with a place. And so I had, I worked for two different firms. And then finally, after the second one, I said, okay, I'm going to try to do this on my own. That's a big leap when basically three years before that, you weren't really sure what immigration law was. It was just an idea. (laughs) Yeah, it was a big leap. You know, what, what, what helped me? I mean, it was like, it was one of these firms that has kind of an awful reputation. They have a reputation for just kind of bleeding people dry with, with how much money that they charge. But the thing about that firm is that it was removal defense. It was deportation defense. And so I started meeting people who were in, had really serious problems with immigration, you know, and needed help. And because I was exposed to those people, and then I started going to immigration court, which is an administrative court. It's not like a real Article Three court. But I really, I liked going to court. I liked making the arguments in front of the judges, immigration judges. Um, I liked, you know, the clients for the most part. I thought that they were honest people who were working hard. 
And when I saw how much, how they're kind of getting exploited by this other big firm, I said, well, if I can just pay attention to their cases, if I can give them good service and let them know that they have one lawyer who is who knows what's going on with their cases, I think even if I charge like a quarter of what these other people charge, I mean, I can make a living and they'll be happy and I can provide a good service to them, you know? Um, and that was the idea. The idea wasn't like, I mean, I knew that I was never going to get rich doing it. You know, that was the idea was just, I want to be able to have some degree of independence, help these people. I speak their language so I can use that, you know, and there was a certain, definitely a leap of faith there because it wasn't just... It wasn't like I had a bunch of money saved up because I had worked for like some big firms and had put away fifty thousand dollars. I mean, I had right, nothing. Right. At that point, I mean, I probably had five hundred bucks in my bank account. I, I spent like two hundred and fifty uh, on a printer. I needed a printer, and started out of the house. I had to get. We had to put some phone lines in, in the house. I was in. I was at this little apartment. It was like a uh, wood building with no insulation. <laughs> so we started the office. And it had wood floors and you know Hollywood, Florida. It had like 14 windows on this. We were on the second floor. 14 windows. It was like 85 degrees in there. <laughs> we had window AC units. We didn't have central AC. My wife has some has a picture of me like uh, sitting sitting at my desk in my underwear because it was so hot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we started, you know. And then after about three months, um, you know, I think I had. I had a few clients who came with me from the other firm that I was with. After a few months, I got a very tiny office in downtown Hollywood. Um, it was like a closet. I had I had a view of the hallway. I had a window to the hallway. And then finally, we went to the one where I had a view of the street. And then we moved into a, like a little suite where at first I shared some space with another attorney, a criminal attorney. And then finally, a couple of years ago, we were able to buy you know, a, a small office, uh, nothing big, but we have a, enough space for the, it's my assistant and my wife who works with me. It's been, it's going to be uh, 12 years in July, July 15th. Wow. And you certainly have, have made a living for yourself and done a lot of good. And I'm sure there's no sor shortage, sadly, I think, of clients for you, right? And with all the changes daily. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of clients. There's a lot of potential clients. There are is a lot of minutia, a lot of little little things to try to follow up on cases. I have not expanded like I've seen some other immigration firms do. Uh, I've kind of chosen to keep it small and and know what's going on with all my cases. My my assistant, who's from Ecuador, she does help me a lot. My wife helps me with making sure that there's uh, the payments are coming in and that we're, our bills are being paid. But all of my clients, and I wouldn't recommend this as a marketing strategy. Uh, I'm not saying that this is the way you need to do it. But all of my clients have come from, uh, from word of mouth. Yeah, We haven't changed the phone number in 12 years and the phone uh, is always ringing. And I think that one of the things that we do that I have decided to do is that we pretty much screen everyone before we have them come in for a consultation. We screen everyone and we try to figure out if there's going to be something that I can do for them before we even have them do a paid, paid consult. Now, probably business-wise, it doesn't make much sense, but for me, I, I feel better about it because I don't have people going in there 
uh, and paying unless there's something, at least, even if it's just to get a copy of their file and review it, you know, that's something that I can do for them. Yeah. And I, I can imagine those first couple of years after law school and having you know, spoken Spanish at high school level, like it might have been rocky, but now you're completely fluent. And I see actually you say you're trilingual with a little Portuguese. Does that come from home? There's an H in the middle of your name. Yes. E-L-H-O is always going to be a Portuguese last name. Yeah. Elio. It's pronounced Elio. But in the, in the United States, it's pronounced, pronounced Botello because, we, you know, it would be a little bit confusing for people to say Botelio, you know. Uh, my father is 100% Portuguese, but doesn't speak any Portuguese. Uh, mm-hmm. My grandparents were both born here in the United States in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, my great-grandparents came from uh, San Miguel uh, Azores, so uh, the Azores, San, San Miguel uh, Azores. They all came from uh, one island, and my grandmother spoke some, some Portuguese. She spoke good Portuguese. I learned it because I was interested in figuring out like maybe uh, how my uh, my ancestors spoke, you know. But I've always liked languages. I mean, in Spanish class in high school, I always liked it. And for me, when I went to Spain, because I studied abroad in Spain with Dartmouth, once I started meeting the people and making friends, I realized that it just completely opened up the world to me. Like I felt I, I could I could talk to anybody. I could you know, learn so much about different ways of life. To me, it was just so cool to be able to open up the world and be able to talk to different people and learn different things. One of the coolest things that I learned, like in Mexico, was, you know, you would talk to people from all different educational levels, like people who had, it wasn't like you had to be talking with somebody who was the upper crust or whatever, like talking to regular people in the street, they would all have the greatest stories. And the funniest, you know, just expressions and so clever, so like happy for the poorest people, the happiest people you ever met, you know. And and so, you know, I think learning a new language can be so cool. You know, it just opens up your your world, but it takes work. I mean, it takes a lot of work. I really liked it. So it didn't seem like much work to me, but I thought it was it was awesome. And Dartmouth was the beginning of that. That was the that was one thing about Dartmouth that really they did a good job at. Yeah, for sure. Even if we had to get up way too early to go to those drills. Oh, yeah. You were half asleep (laughs) during those things. (laughs) (laughs) That was the brilliance of it. You were just kind of getting it in your in your. Yeah, it became like a reptilian reaction, (laughs) like, you know, just to answer right away, you know, that's right. the, uh, The change of the verb or whatever it was. Exactly. So, Jeff, not only this kind of language opening the world to new ways of thinking and being and tying back to your own family culture and that sort of thing, you have told me about your kind of religious upbringing and how you're finally coming back to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, probably around the time I was 28, I actually was married first when I was 28 and I actually had to go through this whole process of an annulment because when I married my current wife, I had to wait three years because I had to get divorced and then go through an annulment process and then get married in the church, which we were able to do in 2013. But when I was 28 and I was preparing for this, the the first marriage that didn't end up working out, I had to answer questions from this priest in this, in, in, in South America. And he asked me questions about how God had worked in my life and 
you know, kind of made me think about stuff that I really, I really hadn't really thought about it, you know, and consciously uh, before that time. But then I, I started to, you know, to think about it. And, um, and I had, um, I've had some experiences in my life. I, mean, I, I am not like by any means um, perfect at all or any kind of a saint, but I have had some experiences where I realized that I made decisions that were not necessarily selfish, that were, were kind of thinking of something bigger than myself and what I immediately wanted that God, for lack of, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, encouraged me. I had a mystical experience one time. I had a mystical, mystical experience that when I was in Houston, I had a, a girlfriend who I really loved, um, who, uh, who had basically told me that if she was going to stay with me, that she would not have any kind of a relationship in her church. She wouldn't go to church. She was a Jehovah's witness. And at a certain point I was going to, uh, you know, have her move up to Houston with me and everything. And, and there was a part of me that said that this is just wrong. I mean, if I'm not going to be able to marry her in her religion or my religion, and she won't be able to, to cultivate a relationship with God, however she feels that that's the right way to do it, that is just not right. You know, because I would be acting as an obstacle to her relationship with God, which is, you know, really important. And I mean, you're talking about a guy who is not really thinking about this stuff, but it just, there was something about it that just made me realize that it was the wrong thing to do. And I had, I mean, I broke up with her. I broke up with her and before she made that decision and it like almost killed me. You know, it was like one of those things where it was so painful to me. It went against everything that like what that I wanted. I felt like that I wanted and I had to stick with it. You know, I had to follow through with it for the good of everybody, you know. And not long after that, I was going for a run. I had finished a run in in, in the park, in Memorial Park in Houston. And um, I was kind of going through this like hellish time, you know. And I had an experience. I had, um, you know, for lack of a better word, I mean, a mystical experience where I felt a force, like I was walking after I had run, a force kind of just go right through through my whole being. The only way I can describe it was like a feeling of love like the force of love. I felt like it was like the force of creation. And it was like a, con a consoling feeling. It was like, uh, it was like God telling me, you know, it's okay, you know, you're doing the right thing. And I have some great things in store for you. You know, that type of thing. It wasn't, and it wasn't like God spoke in my, you know, in my ear, like, uh, you know, like some, <laughs> some people say, God told me this, like with specific instructions. It was just this, uh, this encouragement. And it was like a light in my life. It was like a memorial in my life uh, that there's something bigger than all of us. And it was um, a push for me to learn more about my religion and spirituality and to try to grow and to try to um, cultivate that, that spiritual connection to God in a more consistent way. So that was the beginning of it, I think. That was uh, probably when I was around 20, 26, 27. And that's um, when you're teaching, but have this idea of the immigration law in the back of your head. I was teaching and I was, in my personal life, honestly, a little bit lost. Yeah. That's the truth. 
you know, and I was not, you know, I wasn't being consistent with, with any kind of uh, religious uh, routine. I wasn't, I would go to church every once in a while, kind of always in my mind thinking like, what's this all about? Like, I know I was brought up Catholic. I did CCD, but completely fell away from it as I got older, you know, between college and, and the first few years after school. And now, I mean, I've learned a lot. I mean, I, you know, I don't, not, not to get into any of the political stuff because I don't think of it as a, as a political thing at all. I think that, you know, religion can be a, a good structure to cultivate that relationship with God. And I think that we're all called to be ourselves in the world, to like be a word spoken by God in the world and to share love with other people, especially the people who are, uh, you know, in the worst, worst situations, keeping in mind that, you know, this life is temporary. You know, that especially with with COVID, we've realized that, that, you know, this is, this could be, you never know when, when could be your last day. You know, so we have to uh, plan for the future. And it's not just about thinking of the, re- the reward that you're going to get. Hopefully you'll go to heaven, you know, but to live life in a fuller way, not just for ourselves and for what we can get from one day to the next, but to open ourselves up to, you know, be happier. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And it sounds like you've been able to do that and align not only that personal life, but your professional one and that you you are doing something bigger than yourself for more than your own needs and desires. This is you're part of a a much bigger plan, if you will. So I think you're I think you're doing it right. Thanks, Leslie. I appreciate that. On a good day, that's what you say. On on the bad days, you're going crazy and saying, "What? What? You know, what did I got? What have I gotten myself into?" On a good day, you know, you realize that uh, you know you just have to keep keep pushing forward and always, you know, ask God for help. You know, and don't be afraid to admit, you know, that you can't do it all. You can't do it by yourself. You need that strength. You need that Holy Spirit. You know that you know to help you to do a hard job. You know. Yeah. Well, you're you're making it look a little easy um, and that you're in the right place for the right time. Um, and so I'm sure we could all thank you for your service and thank you for sharing this story with us on the show. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure, Leslie. That was Jeff Botello, an immigration attorney who's been practicing in his own firm in Hollywood, Florida since 2009. He's fluent in Spanish and English and much more proficient in his family's Portuguese tongue than I am. As Jeff noted, language can open up the world, and I think the same can be said of story. I'm so appreciative of the classmates of mine who've been sitting down with me to share their stories on this podcast. I'd also be grateful if you could help spread the word about the show to others, either through leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or just asking a friend to join me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, for future episodes of Roads Taken. Roads Taken.